When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. For this week's Sunday debate, our panel will be debating whether economic sanctions from the West have the power to end Russia's war in Ukraine. Our host today is the international journalist and academic, Philippa Thomas. Here's Philippa with more. Russia has been at war in Ukraine for over three weeks now. NATO still refuses to close the skies over Ukraine, as it believes this will lead to further escalation in the conflict. So as the skies remain open and the West refuses to put troops on the ground, Western allies are resorting to economic warfare. The US has imposed sanctions against Gazprom, one of the world's biggest natural gas companies, while the UK has imposed a ban on exporting luxury goods to Russia and will put a 35% tax on some imports from Russia, including vodka. But headlines have focused on sanctions, especially the sanctioning of individuals. Last week, the UK oligarch task force announced it had sanctioned seven of Russia's wealthiest and most influential oligarchs, including Roman Abramovich, the soon-to-be former owner of Chelsea Football Club. So what's the aim of these sanctions? Can they make a difference as the Russian military destroys more and more of Ukraine with every day that passes? By cutting off the oligarchs, Can the West cut off Putin? Or are these economic sanctions simply gestures which have come too late now that the West's systems of power already flow with Russian money and influence? This week's Sunday debate motion is sanctions won't stop Putin. And joining us, I'm pleased to say we have two distinguished guests. Simon Jenkins is an author, columnist and newspaper editor. He was editor of the Evening Standard from 1976 to 1978 and of the Times from 1990 to 1992. Uh, You probably know Simon writes a regular column for The Guardian covering domestic and global affairs. He's also the author of A Short History of Europe from Pericles to Putin. And joining Simon, we have Bill Browder, leader of Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, which seeks to impose targeted visa bans and asset freezes on human rights abusers and highly corrupt officials. Uh, Bill is the author of the 2016 book Red Notice, a true story of corruption, murder, and how I became Putin's number one enemy. Welcome both to the Sunday debate. We like to begin by giving the floor to our guests to set out their case for or against the motion, which is sanctions won't stop Putin. So first, we'll begin with Bill. Bill, the floor is yours. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you for that. Sanctions will stop Putin if they're done properly. Saying sanctions won't stop Putin is like saying medicine um, doesn't cure patients. It all depends on what the sanctions are, and how they're implemented. 
But the key in this particular crisis that we're in is that Vladimir Putin is murdering Ukrainians um, on a daily basis. He's flattening the country. And up until we decide that we want to actually physically stop him, then our only option is to economically stop him. And I've seen many years and many false attempts to try to stop him using sanctions. And they've been false attempts because they've been government's attempts to be seen to be doing something, but to not actually do something. But we're now facing an ex existential crisis where if Vladimir Putin is allowed to succeed in Ukraine, he'll be on the border of Estonia and other NATO countries. And so what do we do? Well, we have to completely and economically blockade him. And we've started to. The um, US, UK, and other countries have frozen his central bank reserves, and about $350 billion of his $640 billion war chest is now frozen. We've cut off 70% of the Russian banks from SWIFT, which is a quite draconian thing to do. We need to cut off 100% of the Russian banks from SWIFT to be effective. When that was done against Iran, it basically put them back to the economic dark ages and brought them to the negotiating table. And then third, but not least, we need to go after Putin's offshore money. How do we go after his offshore money? Well, he keeps that offshore money. And I would, I would argue that Putin is one of the richest people in the world, if not the richest. I think he's got $200 billion of net worth and he doesn't hold that money in his own name. He holds that in the name of oligarchs. And so um, if we were to freeze that money of the oligarchs, then we cut off his access to his offshore capital. And so far, a bit more than a dozen really big oligarchs have had their assets frozen in the West. That's not enough by far. There's about 100 oligarchs that need to have their assets frozen. But if we basically cut off his access to his war chest in Russia, we cut off his access to his war chest outside of Russia. We stop the transactions from banks and don't allow Western companies to lend to him. Then the only thing we have left that where he gets money is from energy sales. And to the extent that we can actually stop that, then it will have achieved, we'll have achieved a total economic blockade. If we achieve a total economic blockade, then he will run out of money. He doesn't have enough money to fight this war, which is costing between a billion and $2 billion a day if he has no money coming in. And so will, will sanctions stop Putin? Yes, if they're done correctly. Um, will they not stop Putin? Um, possibly if they're done incorrectly. And it all depends on the political will to actually do this properly. Bill Browder, thank you. Simon Jenkins, the floor is yours. Thank you. Huge respect for Bill and for his book. Um, and I have no time whatsoever for Putin or his oligarchs. So can we just establish that? The question, I think, which is rightly put in the motion is... Is this going to work? And the question then is not are they savage, the sanctions, but are they effective? And I've been to so many conferences on economic sanctions, and every single one of them describes how appallingly uh, savage they are, how much they hurt, how much they cost, how much damage they do to the victim country. I have yet to come across a conference which someone shows that they work. There's about 30 states that America currently sanctions in some sense or another. They include the states with the most entrenched, longest lasting regimes in the world, almost all authoritarian. I believe sanctions, and I really have studied these better than I've studied Russia, I have to say, but I've studied them everywhere. And Almost invariably, sanctions have the effect of strengthening, not weakening a government. That is because governments do not depend on economics. They depend on authority and control. And the sanctioned state is a state in ever greater control. 
ever greater uh, repression, ever greater suppression of dissent. All these are consequences of the isolation of a state. And I do not believe in that. I believe in, in, in contact between states, in pressure, soft pressure between states. I believe in maintaining diplomatic relations between states, catastrophe after catastrophe, everywhere from North Korea to Syria to Iran has been the result of a sort of medieval style blockade. It just doesn't work. And I just like to think that we can find some way of influencing these countries, and many of them are beyond influence. The assumption that the West is, is, is still an all-powerful, so to speak, neo-imperialist force uh, is out of date now. If there were ways, short of military action, of enforcing our will on these countries, and I'm not at all sure it always is just to do that. It's not in the United Nations Charter that, that America and Britain and Europe rule the world. We need to have a, a, not just the fact that countries like Russia are, are, are in every way odious. It's whether it's our responsibility to do something about it. But if we do something about it, it should be something that can be proved to be effective. And I just don't think that's the case here. Simon Jenkins, thank you. So we're hearing from Bill Browder. Sanctions will stop Putin if applied properly. We're hearing from Simon Jenkins. He's yet to see a case where sanctions actually work. I'd like to look at different aspects of what's going on with Russia, Putin, the oligarchs, the people of Russia, as we look at what sanctions can or may be about to do. Can I focus you first on the oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs who have such power, such wealth? Um, Bill, can I come back to you to ask, do you think they are actually being impacted by sanctions in a meaningful way? There's no question that the oligarchs are being impacted by sanctions. For the oligarch who is subject to the sanctions, it pretty much ruins their life. The moment that you get put on the US sanctions list, or even the UK sanctions list for that matter, you can no longer have access to the bank accounts, you can no longer sell or buy a property or move um, capital from one place to another, nobody can do a business deal with you. Heck, you can't even turn on your computer because your Microsoft license has been canceled. And so what it does is it, it effectively takes huge international business people and makes them financial pariahs at a stroke of a pen. And that's hugely, hugely disruptive, wealth-destroying, and I would say morally destroy, you know, destroys their morale in a way that, that you can't even imagine. But the other thing about the sanctions program is that in addition to affecting the people who are actually sanctioned, it creates a effectively a reign of terror on the others who haven't been sanctioned, who are all sitting there and wondering if they're going to be next. And it is a quite effective way of showing the oligarchs that basically any support of Putin is being punished, and his way of showing Putin, Putin that his own money is being frozen at the same time. So meeting one reign of terror with another reign of terror is in effect fighting fire with fire. Simon, on the question of the oligarchs, we're coming on to Putin's wealth, but do you see evidence that this is having impact, or maybe it should still be allowed to play out? Well, I'm not aware that, that uh, oligarchs are sitting around the table with Putin at the moment discussing the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, most of them are in London and New York. Uh, I, I want to see evidence that it works, not that they're suffering. I don't give a damn about suffering oligarchs. I don't know any. I know one or two, actually, and they're not suffering that much, as you rightly pointed out. But, I mean, I mean if they all sink in their yachts, I just don't care. Um, we're talking about Putin. What affects Putin's attitude to this war? And this war is clearly in his mind 
way beyond economics. It's a matter of, of, there's no existential threat to us. There's an existential threat to Russia, he thinks. As long as he thinks that, he will behave as if it is an existential threat. And that's the, that's the menace. If we really think it behoves the West to go in there and stop him doing it, we should go in there and stop him doing it. I think it would be a catastrophe. But I really don't see the oligarchs having anything to do with the case at all. There's a question here about the pressure points on Putin personally. What works? And through the oligarchs, can you effectively get to him? Bill? So uh, when Putin um, came into power, he was um, really not all that powerful. He was president of the presidential administration, but not president of Russia, because the oligarchs at that time controlled Russia through informal means. They basically bought members of the parliament, bought government officials. And so Putin's big job was to um, basically reestablish control. And he did that by arresting the richest oligarch in Russia, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky. And he put him on trial, and he allowed the other oligarchs to watch on TV as the richest man in Russia sat in a cage. And after the uh, conviction of Mikhail Hordakovsky, the richest man in Russia, all the other oligarchs came to him and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And he said 50%. And at that moment in time, Putin became the richest man in the world, and Putin also became the biggest oligarch in Russia. But he didn't ask them to transfer the money into his name, because if they had, then anyone could have blackmailed him. And they continued to hold the money that is his in their name. And so when you look at an oligarch who's on the Forbes list that says, and it says they're worth $20 billion, they're not. They're worth $10 billion, and the other 10 belongs to Vladimir Putin. And so if you want to hurt Vladimir Putin, which I think that it's sort of commonly acknowledged that we want to do, you have to go after his money. And if you want to go after his money, you have to go after the oligarchs. And that's what's being done. And I don't think that there's ever been a, a historical case like this in which you can prove it doesn't work. It's clear and logical that if Putin is doing terrible things and he's a terribly rich man and he holds that money with, with people other than himself and you want to create a consequence for him doing terrible things, then you should go after that money. And to go after that money, you go after the oligarchs. Well, if there's any case of a, an authoritarian leader who has been fined um, billions of dollars of, of the trillions he may have, who has then changed his mind about his leadership of the country, then tell me one. It may well be, and I, I'm always careful about these things, we're now living through such unprecedented times in so many respects. This could be the case that disproves my law. But as far as I'm concerned, money is not the issue here. Any dictator can afford a war. He pays for it later on. He can afford a war because he's living from day to day. Putin has not shown to me or to anything I've read any sign of being influenced by these economic sanctions. Everybody around him may be influenced. It may well be enough people get together to go and kill him. But as far as I see, and this applies to, to, to authoritarian regimes everywhere, they are not vulnerable to financial or economic pressure. They're vulnerable to power. And he, in the moment, has got no threat, threat to his power. Simon, can I just follow up? Money is not the issue here, but for the millions of Russians who are suffering. It very much is. All studies of sanctions show that, that they hurt the poorest most. Sanctions are a rich man's game and the poor suffer. It's just appalling what sanctions have done to dozen, at least a dozen countries around the world which have been having sanctions inflicted on them. To me, it's, it's an immoral sort of weapon. It's a bit like a bomb. You know it destroys lots of things, but you can't prove it works. Uh, it's not like a medicine is a bomb. In this case, it seems to me that we've got a classic instance of an isolated dictator being forced into ever greater isolation, uh, being besieged by abuse from all sides, 
who has not shown he's going to give into it at all. I think he will give into it eventually, but he'll give into force on the ground from the Ukrainians. And that's the only force he understands at the moment. I think these sanctions are completely pointless. Bill, the idea of a price worth paying for sanctions, if you feel strongly that money is the issue, money will be a determining issue here. Your thoughts on the price being paid by the Russian people? It's very unfortunate that we're in this position. I think that, that we're in this position because of an extreme, narrow-minded version of appeasement that took place for the last 20 years, where everybody tried to look the other way when Vladimir Putin did terrible things. There was no consequence after the invasion of Georgia. There was no consequence after the annexation of Crimea. There was no consequence after the shooting down of MH17. There was no consequence after the um, poisoning in Salisbury. And so um, Vladimir Putin thought there would be no consequence here. And had, had we actually created consequences, and when I say consequences, I, I don't, they don't have to be punishing the Russian people. If somebody does something terrible, you have to create some consequence. You can't just say no consequence because you can't prove that the consequence causes trouble. And we haven't created any consequence for him. And so he, he, he thought that if he went, rolled over Ukraine, we would have the same reaction we've had in every other terrible thing he's done. And so I, I hate the idea that the average Russian person suffers. They're as much a victim to him as we are. But we, we, now we're in this situation. Had, had we gone after his money earlier, if we had sanctioned oligarchs, his money earlier, then he might have had a different calculus about what he was going to do in Ukraine. But we were so timid and narrow-minded and business-focused that we did nothing, and we emboldened him to do this. And now we're in a totally different situation. And I, I completely agree with Simon that we're not going to be able to change his mind. He, Simon is exactly right. He's not going to change his mind. And I've dealt with him man-to-man a, a -man in a conflict for the last decade, and he never changes his mind. He only escalates. That is what he does. There's, he has no reverse gear, only a forward gear. But to use the car analogy, he goes forward and he will continue to go forward. And, and by the way, if we corner him, he, he will lash out. And if we don't corner him, he will eviscerate his enemy. That's what he does. He, he has no capacity to do anything other than that. But, but, and this is really important, using the car analogy, we can make sure he runs out of gas. And the way that he runs out of gas is by the gas is money. And it's just simple logic. It costs him a billion to $2 billion a day to run this war. He has no access to his, his war chest, the central bank reserves. He has no access to his foreign war chest, oligarch capital. He has no access to foreign capital through bank loans. And, and he has no access to a lot of other stuff because companies are cutting him off. And eventually, he's going to have to decide, does he want, to do it, does he want his people to rise up because they have, they're starving? Or does he want to and continue funding the military uh, adventure? Or does he want to scale it back? Bill, can we look at another state to see, to talk about the effectiveness of sanctions. Iran is a state that, that you've been watching for years. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who we all cheered to see released this week, won the Magnitsky Prize in November with her husband and little girl accepting it on her behalf. So she is now out. But it, it could be argued that sanctions did nothing to release her. It has nothing to do with her, but um, the sanctions cutting Iran off of SWIFT brought them to the negotiating table for the nuclear deal. They, they had refused and refused and refused for, for, for many years. 
they refu- had refused for many years. The Iranians came to the negotiating table. And yet, when you look at Iran, you could say the Revolutionary Guard is stronger than ever. It is more extreme. Any sign of any liberal flowering has been very firmly squashed. Well, it all depends on what you're trying to achieve with sanctions. If you're trying to achieve a regime change, that's probably unrealistic. If you're trying to achieve a very narrow objective, which is, let's say, uh, a, a nuclear uh, disarmament deal or a, um, a ceasefire in a, in a country deal, um, sanctions can be very effective. I think it's, I don't know, you know, I've not seen the study that says sanctions doesn't, don't work. I, I've only um, uh, heard that stated as a, a, a sort of a blanket statement. Simon, your thoughts? Well, they haven't worked for almost half a century. Um, I remember Iran in, in 1979 um, when a dear friend of mine was there and he talked about the Shah going and how there was now hope for, um, for Iran uh, in collaboration with the West to become a mildly liberal, mildly, he emphasised, uh, Islamic state and possibly a democracy, uh, provided um, we understood the nature of a religious regime which was then in place. Everything we did to Iran from then on was calculated to, to drive it to the Islamic extreme, and it has done just that. There have been one or two occasions when we've sorely impoverished the people. I mean, the savagery of sanctions in their effect on the Iranian people should not be underestimated. Um, they, they have uh, sought a nuclear weapon. Uh, they've done so in parallel to Pakistan. They can't see what's different between them and Pakistan. But at the end of the day, um, they still haven't done a deal. Uh, at the end of the day, we're dealing with Iran as if it was a pariah state, um, and um, and it is it is a terrible example of what sanctions can do to a country, rather than help them as I, as I think foreigners ought to do, help them towards a liberal democracy. The West's record in establishing liberal democracies around the world, let's face it, is appalling, and the chief weapon we've used for it is economic sanctions. Well, if we take your logic, then we should do nothing and just let dictators and tyrants run riot all over the world and do whatever they want. And, and with the only option being military confrontation, I'm not recommending that we send troops to Ukraine or to Iran. If we can't do that, then then what's what, what are the other tools that we have at our disposal? And if we take your logic to the extreme, we should just sit back and just let the savages take over the world. <laughs> I do not regard the rest of the world as savages, nor do I regard the word we in your sentence as, 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 as a moral imperative. Britain used to say that often, uh, we rule the world, they must do what we say to them. I just don't think that's in a proper state for even the West to adopt. Uh, we want things to happen, yes. We have ways of doing that, and I believe it's through soft power and example and encouragement and contact. It is not through aggression. Uh, economic aggression is another form of military aggression. I believe it's very ineffective. Military aggression, at least you sometimes win, although in Iraq and Afghanistan, you win disastrously. But the assumption that we have a, not just a, a, a duty, but a right uh, to go and intervene in these countries is not automatic to me. We're not sitting back and letting evil men triumph. We are watching the world around us and trying in our own way to influence it. And I just do not think you influence it by impoverishing its people. And that's what we're doing to almost all the countries we sanction. Simon, you first introduced the word effective when we were talking about whether sanctions could stop Putin. So if not sanctions, what is your suggestion? You talked earlier about let the Ukrainians fight him back, fight him off. Well, start with the principle of don't do harm, OK? We are doing harm to these people. We're deliberately doing harm. We're not making any bones about it. We're trying to impose on them a form of poverty that it will do them harm. Now, I think the obligation on anybody, however interventionist-minded they are, however imperialist they are, is to prove why doing harm is going to be bring about good. In other words, be effective. And, and in the case of sanctions, it's very, very difficult to do it. The, the, the only sanction that's really been effective 
um, was against Britain in 1956, uh, against the democracy, uh, when America withdrew support for Sterling, very effective. Um, and to a certain extent, but I've really studied it, in South Africa, but only to a certain extent, South Africa did not fall because of sanctions. Uh, it changed its mind quite genuinely within the ruling elite. But either way, uh, I don't know of any dictator that's fallen because he'd been made poor by the outside world. Now, if you can't do, do well, yes, do sit back and watch. Uh, do appear idle. Uh, if you can't do good, don't do harm. Well, I think there's a lot of people that would disagree with you about um, South Africa, including the the activists. Um, uh, in fact, my whole um, campaign um, for Magnitsky sanctions was born in South Africa. I was there right after Sergei Magnitsky was murdered, and I met with a woman named Helen Zille. Helen Zille was at the time the governor of the Cape region, and she was one of the people who was worked with Stephen Biko and trying to expose the crimes of the apartheid regime. And she was having to live underground, avoid arrest, etc. And she ended up being one of the people with organizing the sanctions and, and calling for the sanctions. And she told me, as a participant, that Western sanctions were the key to ending the apartheid regime. And so, you know, I don't know where your assumption comes from, but it's just simple logic that if you're trying to stop somebody doing something bad, and they're evil, and they're aggressive, you should try using whatever tools are available to you. And it's just wrong to say, well, nobody has scientifically proven that a tool is, is useful, and therefore we should do anything and just sit back. And, and yes, we, we have a duty. And when I say we, I, I mean the um, democracy international. We're dealing with the authoritarian international now. If we allow them to do what they're planning to do, then we will end up in a terrible, terrible place and we will be in much greater danger, and it's in our, our national security interest to do what we have to do, whatever is available to us, in this match, to fight back. Democracy International, Authoritarians International. Simon, do we have to be on the field? No, I'm sorry. I, just, I don't buy into this. It's, it's a Curtis LeMay school of aggression. Uh, if we see something evil, go after them, smash them. Uh, and hope sometimes it works. Uh, I just think we, I mean, I, I, I know South Africa, I was in South Africa as a journalist and uh, I, I know Helen Zilla. Yes, it did play a part, but it played a part in, in South Africa, in fact, as a sort of democracy. It persuaded the Afrikaners that they've got to change their minds and they did change their minds. So I think they changed their minds, frankly, because they knew they were wrong, which actually does sometimes happen as Britain did in 1956. We're talking about dictators now and dictators very, very rarely give in to economic pressure. They give in to guns. If you really think that it's America's duty and Britain's duty to go around the world and tell dictators they've got to stand down or change their ways, do it with force. Uh, we're not going to do it with force because, frankly, it would kill even more people. But, but the argument is not proved that these sorts of weapons deployed across the world bring about the goal that we want to see. And I could just go from Cuba to Korea to Afghanistan, all these places we tried them. We tried them in Iraq. Uh, it was so disastrous in Iraq, we had to go to war with Iraq, ditto in Afghanistan. Um, they are blunt instruments, very, very blunt instruments. And just because we can't think of anything else to do, doesn't mean we should do that. Can I bring you both onto another facet of this, which is energy policy? Bill, you said earlier, you know, energy sales from Russia, if they are blocked, that that really is a nail in the coffin for Putin. You know, that's he 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 runs out of a lot of um, a lot of international cash there, and we see with Boris Johnson in Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, leaders in the West frantically looking for other sources. How important? Do you both think a reshaping of energy policy is right now? And is this something that, that could last, Bill? 
Well, I think that it's crucially important um, as it relates to Russia, because Vladimir Putin's Russia, as uh, I think John McCain said, they're a gas station with nukes. And um, we, we, don't, we shouldn't buy their gas from them. And what's, what's remarkable is that over the last 20 years, we've become not less dependent on Russian oil and gas, but more dependent. And it's particularly remarkable that Germany, a country which is closer to the front line than the UK or the US, has chosen to build a pipeline to bypass Ukraine that the Russians wanted to squeeze Ukraine and to become more dependent on Russian gas. And so there's been a lot of really bad decisions made in the last 20 years as far as oil and gas coming out of Russia. And we should absolutely not depend on it for a lot of different reasons, but um, primarily for our own national security so that they can't cut it off if we end up in a, in a conflict with them, because they have proven time and time again that they'll use every tool at their disposal, including energy, as a weapon of geopolitics. Well, I don't disagree with that altogether. I'm in favor of self-sufficiency in, in energy to a certain extent. Britain isn't dependent on oil or gas from Russia. We get some of it from, from Russia, more gas than oil. But trade should be seen as a good thing, not a bad thing. Other things being equal, we should go to work with these people to buy their stuff. We were trading with Germany right up to the outbreak of the first, uh, the, the two world wars. This economic weapon is is, is essentially seen as a, as a, I mean, a demonstration alternative to, to hot war. Uh, and that's why it's now so frankly fashionable. But I'm, I'm actually against the idea that we should all separate ourselves into, into little economic citadels and not trade with each other. The best way, as we've seen in Southeast Asia, the best way of resisting the growth of authoritarianism is, is contact, trade contact, intellectual contact, human contact, tourism. These are the ways in which you influence countries in a liberal direction, not by punishing them. Well, um, that's a quaint thought. And I wish we lived in such a lovely world where that worked. And that was a thought that, that we um, sort of took with us with China. We said if we let them into the international financial capital commerce system, that they'll become like us. But instead, we became dependent on Chinese exports and we became dependent on, on Chinese investment. We became dependent on all sorts of Chinese stuff. And then they started setting up concentration camps for, for the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And they then tore up the treaty that we had with them on Hong Kong and started arresting Hong Kong dissidents. We, we live in a world with there are some really bad people and doing really bad stuff. And, and we won't be able to convince them through dialogue. We won't be able to convince them through logic. We won't be able to convince them through trade. They have just bad ideas and bad thoughts and violent thoughts and, and um, repressive thoughts. And I wish the world were, were such a nice place where we could operate the way that you say, which is dialogue, diplomacy, trade, and, and logic. It doesn't work that way. And I mean, I've faced it firsthand with Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know, with deaths to show for it. And um, I know how he works and I know how dictators work and I know how they react and from personal experience. And to, to say, you, you won't be able to achieve anything with a dictator because they won't be budged. Well, um, all dictators are people that operate based on risk and reward, constraints and barriers, and, and so on. And if you can't convince them to behave, which we have not been able to do with Vladimir Putin, then you've got to put up hard barriers. And hard barriers include sanctions. And I agree with you about not, not going after the people. And, and by, by labeling all sanctions bad, I think is a t terrible misnomer. If you have targeted sanctions against Putin and the people who hold his money, that's like a modern cancer drug. You don't want to poison the whole patient to kill the cancer cell. You want to just kill this cancer cell. But um, to step back and say, 
we shouldn't do anything because these people, nothing has worked before. Um, I just think is just, you know, uh, basically reneging any responsibility and just sitting back and hoping that some, they're not going to come for you. And and when they do come for you, as they have with me, um, I, I, I know how to fight. And and I figured out what, what he cares about, and he cares about sanctions. Well, uh, if he cares about sanctions, he might say so. But I mean, <laughs> there's no evidence that sanctions against these dictators work. I'm just simply saying the purpose of imposing them is to change them. You're not trying to bolster them, are you? I mean, you're trying to change them. You're trying to undo them. You're trying to demolish their power structures. It doesn't work. Every single... Well, it, it, well, it, it, it does. It, well, it does give, work. Give me a dictator who's been toppled by sanctions. I'm not going to give you a dictator who's been toppled by sanctions. I'm going to give you Vladimir Putin, mm. who we're talking about right now. And when the Magnitsky Act was passed, mm. which was targeted sanctions against people who commit gross atrocities and human rights abuses, he made it his single largest foreign policy priority to try to repeal that. Why? Because it works, because it's something that he's afraid of, because it's a consequence that, that causes him to change his calculus, because the risk and reward of taking actions has now been changed. To say that some academic studies say sanctions doesn't work is just simple ignoring fact. Can I, in our last five minutes, bring in another factor and offer the thought that sanctions could stop Putin in combination with internal pressure? internal dissent. And I'm aware that might sound very naive, given the repression across Russia. But I'm just thinking about the symbolic value, for example, of the brave television producer who managed to stand up and make her voice heard. What about pressure from inside? Simon? Well, I think that is sometimes effective. It's, it, I think that's much more embarrassing to Putin than five oligarchs in London losing their stately homes. But how, does outside, how do outsiders help that? We help it with contact. I mean, the, the only power we have over China, China's, China, first thing, by helping China come into the international economy, we've probably done more good for the starving of the world globally than anyone's done in centuries. I mean, China is an amazing place now compared to what it was when I first went there 30 years ago. No credit to the regime, but um, contact with China didn't not work because of the Uyghurs. Uh, it worked because trade helped. Now, cut to internal dissent. Internal dissent, I believe, in the case of China, for instance, the best thing we can do to destabilize China is what we're doing. We're educating hundreds of thousands of their children at universities, and they're going back to China and the next generation is going to be a very different lot from the previous generation. They are the dissenters of the future. But as far as contact is concerned, I just know that it's contact, talk, exchanges. You know, it's, it's all, you call it, you call it quaint and, and, and petty. I think it works. It does work. It, it's worked in Southeast Asia over the past half century, uh, where very few dictators emerged. And you do have uh, rudimentary, I wouldn't say oligarchies, but sorts of democracies. And in, in Russia, I mean, there are, there are genuinely good people in Moscow who are really going through agonies at the moment. And I often think to myself, what would they most like us to do? And I think punching oligarchs is pretty low down their priority list. Boris Nemtsov was the leader of the opposition, and, um, and he was somebody who went to Congress on the day of the vote of the Magnitsky Act, and when it passed the House of Representatives with 89%, he said, this is the single best thing that the United States has ever done for the Russian people that has ever happened in the history of our two countries. Well, congratulations to the Magnitsky Act, I have to say. And Bill, on the wider question, what we're seeing now to some extent is a cultural isolation of Russia as well. You know, when you see orchestras deterred from playing Russian music, or Russians being hissed at in the street, that wider impact of sanctions of demonizing a, a people is perhaps something that becomes hard to control. 
Yeah, but that's not sanctions. That's just emotional reaction to a terrible, murderous invasion that people are trying to express themselves in ways that probably aren't appropriate. It's like after September 11th, you know, people were, um, you know, had all sorts of antipathy towards Arab or Islam that was inappropriate because it was just a small group of terrorists. I don't necessarily agree with that. I do agree that yeah, Gergiev, who is um, playing at the Munich Philharmonic, refused to criticize Putin. And, and that's perfectly appropriate to say, if you don't criticize Putin, you're fired. But to, to go after Russians for speaking Russian, who are probably just as, as mortified by what Putin is doing is, is of course, wrong. And that, that's not sanctions. That's just an emotional reaction. Sanctions are you know, freezing the assets of people who have gained money from Vladimir Putin, who who are holders of Vladimir Putin's money. How could that be a bad thing? I just I just don't know how anyone can say that's a bad thing. I mean, it's just, it's just illogical and, and doesn't make any sense to, to say, unless you can make an argument, if, Simon, if you're making the argument that Putin his money is not held by the oligarchs, then I'm, I'm ready to like, engage with you on that argument and, and prove my point. But if they hold his money, how can I you say no it's a bad problem, thing? I have no problem with holding oligarchs to account and, and penalising Putin. My argument is whether this works. I think, gentlemen, that is the point at which we will wrap this up and everybody who's listening to us will have their views and may have been changed by yours. But thank you, Simon Jenkins and Bill Browder. Let me just say that Bill's new book, Freezing Order, the true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath is out in April. And you can continue to read Simon's regular columns in The Guardian. You've been listening to The Sunday Debate from Intelligence Squared. I'm Philippa Thomas. Thank you for joining us. 